Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization. Black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort as Martin Luther King did to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. For those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with, be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act, against all white people. I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. A favorite poem, I my favorite poet was Aeschylus. He once wrote, Even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own day despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division, what we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom 
and compassion toward one another. Feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. We can do well in this country. We will have difficult times. We've had difficult times in the past, but we will, and we will have difficult times in the future. It is not the end of violence. It is not the end of lawlessness, and it's not the end of disorder. But the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together, want to improve the quality of our life, and want justice for all human beings that abide in our land. With and what dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people. Thank you very much. Wow. Welcome everybody to the show. This is the Lone Gunman Podcast, episode number 66. Uh, TSBD, House of Lies 2. Whew. Sorry, I'm uh, not much moves your boy, but uh, damn it. You know, uh, we uh, lost another great one. 47 years ago this week, and I just wanted to uh, remember him on the show for the great man that he was, and the great man that he could have been. RFK gave this speech on April the 4th, 1968, today uh, Martin Luther King was shot and killed, he was campaigning. He happened to be in Indianapolis, Indiana, and he wanted to announce to the people that, that Martin Luther King had been shot, and the police there told him, look, man, we can't protect you, you know, you, you have to do this on your own. So, in the middle of the ghetto in Indianapolis, on the back of a flatbed pickup truck, RFK delivered the speech you just heard using no notes he spoke from the heart and Indianapolis was the only major city that uh, didn't have riots that night uh, you know Bobby he spoke and reiterated Martin Luther King's belief in nonviolence in uh, peace and uh a hundred days later, he would be dead. People ask me all the time why I do this. Um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, I'm passionate. It sickens me to the core what our country has become. And it makes me ill to think about what we could have been had all these great leaders of the 60s been allowed to implement their messages. You know, the world would probably be a very different place run by very different people. I guess I do this ultimately, you know, for justice and truth to finally come out to the light. You know, I don't see many lone nutters when it comes to the RFK assassination. 
um, where you guys at? You know, it's all of a sudden, you know, it's possible for the, there to be a conspiracy with the murder of RFK, you know, and, uh, you know, Coretta Scott King actually won a civil suit in the nineties, uh, against our government and Lloyd Jowers and, uh, in a court of law, you know, that it wasn't James Earl Ray who shot Martin Luther King. It was determined to be part of a conspiracy. Now this wasn't a criminal case. It was a civil trial to which they won a dollar, which is all the King family asked for because they wanted the truth to come out after all these years to finally be told. And Sirhan Sirhan has been sitting in a California prison for the past 47 years. For what? You know, the man couldn't remember what happened. He pled guilty. He was found guilty. But once again, not all of the facts of the case were out and about. You know, the coroner's report alone exonerates Sirhan Sirhan. How can Sirhan, from the front of Bobby Kennedy, three or four feet in front of Bobby Kennedy, shoot him behind the right ear and in the right armpit? You know, that would require a much more magical bullet than killed his brother in order for that to be the case. And uh, also, there was supposedly 13 shots fired in the pantry, and Sirhan's gun held eight. You do the math. Um, you know, that's okay for that to be a conspiracy. You know, I don't see anybody really fighting that. You know, but God forbid if you think there was one with JFK. You know, <laughs> God forbid if you think there was one with Martin Luther King. God forbid if you think there was one with Malcolm X. You know, God forbid if you think there was one with JFK. You know, I don't know about you guys, but I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And that's to ultimately find out the truth, wherever it may lead us. You know, if it turns out somehow, by some kind of magical spell, that... Oswald really did it by himself with the help of no one then I'll accept that and I'll move on but I don't think that's the case there's many many other possible answers out there you know it's possible Oswald could have been part of a conspiracy a much larger conspiracy uh, to which he had knowledge of prior he could have been part of a conspiracy to which he had no knowledge of prior and was, as he stated, that he was a patsy uh, that day. Um, but he might have figured out real quick what happened, which is why he went back to his rooming house and grabbed his gun. Um, you know, there's then there's the conspiracy that, you know, Oswald might have been where he said he was at the time of the shots, and that's in the first floor lunchroom, eating his lunch, all by his lonesome. Which would mean that he was framed for the murder of our president. And last week I spent a lot of time going through uh, some of the time events of that day and different players and different workers in the Texas School Book Depository to try to lay that out for you, how it could not just be possible that all these people somehow missed Oswald uh, skipping down the stairs. Um, so this week... I wanted to take a closer look at uh, some other people that worked in the building. And that would be Bill Shelley, Roy Truly, and Victoria Adams. Now, I want you to hear with your own ears what Roy Truly and Marion Baker say they did that day. Okay? So here we go. They seemed like they was high, and uh, they were directly ahead of me. And uh, as I tried to figure out which where they came from, and the building that I had in mind was directly ahead of me, and that was the Texas Book Depository, and around there where 
with his stairs or elevator was. And uh, there was a man who spoke up and said uh, he was a building manager and he'd show me. I realized that he didn't know the layout of the building, so I ran in with him. It was just a matter of seconds after the third shot. And we ran across the shipping room floor, stopped at the elevators. And uh, we couldn't get that service elevator working. And uh, he said, well, we use the stairs. And he turned around and immediately went up the stairs. We ran on up the first flight to the second floor. And the officer looked in the snack bar adjacent to our office. And I, I, I kind of looked off to the right over through a doorway and saw an image of a man walking away through that doorway. Uh, and when I got to the doorway, he was on down there a little bit, and I hollered at him and asked him to come back. The officer with me had a gun in his hand, and uh, he threw the gun uh, toward the uh, middle of Oswald, and he looked probably a little startled like anybody else would if you just put a gun in his stomach all at once, which I thought was natural. I turned around and asked him if the man worked for him, and if he knew him. And he said, yes, he works for me, and I, I know him. And uh, at that time, uh, the man never did say anything. I never did say anything further to him. Uh, I turned around and went on up the stairs. To the the time it took you to get into the building and go up the stairs, and the time when you first saw Lee Harvey Oswald. I believe, <clears throat> excuse me, from the time that I heard those shots and time... I ran into that building, entered the lobby, and uh, made it up to the second floor. It was approximately a minute and a half to two minutes. And uh, that would be pretty close to it. In your testimony before the Warren Commission, uh, was this reenacted, uh, this timing? Yes, sir. Well, we went back to the uh, same day that we figured what what I did that particular day, and we tried to get to the spot where I thought I first heard the shots. And from there, we took it and we did everything, reenacted re the whole situation there, the ent entrance into the building, and uh, the talk we had between the building manager and myself, and then we went on back through the building, and we tried to get the service elevator down. And uh, we then went on up the stairs. As you recall it, does that seem like a reasonable length of time for him to have been able to do those things? Uh, he could have done it if he'd have been awful fast or if he'd have pre-planned it that way. But the, the uh, ceilings are low on uh, each floor and the, sh and the stairways do not have too many steps. On. Attention all squad. The suspect in the shooting at Elm and Houston is reported to be an unknown white male, approximately 30, slender build, height 5 feet 10 inches, weight 165 pounds, reported to be armed with what is thought to be a 30 caliber rifle. Now the last little piece you heard there was a description of the suspect put out at 12.45 p.m. Uh, later... Chief Jesse Curry could not answer how they got that description uh, so quickly and broadcast it that early. <laughs> but you just heard interspersing interviews with Marion Baker and Roy Truly, the building superintendent, and the officer who rushed into the building after he supposedly heard these shots, which it occurred to me he must have really, really good hearing. Because not only was he on a motorcycle, which back then were very loud, but there were also a lot of other motorcycles in the motorcade creating a very loud ruckus and making a lot of noise. And he also had, tightly on his head, a padded motorcycle helmet uh, latched under his chin. So he must have really had really good hearing. 
Um, he keeps saying that how he heard the shots, but he also gives a visual indicator of seeing pigeons fly from the roof of the building. So let's take a look, shall we, at uh, some of the first day testimony of Roy Truly and Marion Baker and see what they had to say then. And we'll see how it holds up against what we know now. All right, let me just pull it up here real quick. Okay, this is Marion Baker on the 22nd of November, right after it happened. He says, I was riding motorcycle escort for the President of the United States at approximately 12.30 p.m. I was on Houston uh, Street, and the President's car had made a left turn from Houston onto Elm. Just as I approached Elm and Houston, I heard three shots. I realized that those shots were rifle shots and began to try to figure out where they came from. Uh, gee, dummy, all you had to do was look up. Now, if you looked up and you saw pigeons flying from the roof, he likely would have seen a gun hanging out of the sixth floor window. Don't you think, people? Maybe. Um, he says, I decided the shots had come from the building on the northwest corner of Elm and Houston. This building is used by the Board of Education for book storage. I turned off my motor and ran inside the building. As I entered the door, I saw several people standing around. I asked these people where the stairs were. A man stepped forward and stated he was the building manager and that he would show where the stairs were. I followed the man to the rear of the building and he said, let's take the elevator. The, ele the elevator was hung several floors up, so we took the stairs instead. Uh, and we reached the third or fourth floor. I saw a man walking away from the stairway. I called to the man, and he turned around and came back toward me. The manager said, I know that man. He works here. I then turned the man loose and went up to the top floor. The man I saw was a white man, approximately 30 years old, 5'9", 165, dark hair, and wearing a light brown jacket. Now, a couple things here in Mr. Baker's first day affidavit. Uh, no second floor lunchroom speak whatsoever. Um, no report of him catching a glimpse through a door and having to actually go into another room to confront this individual. He stated that this encounter happened on the stairs. Uh, as they reached the third or fourth floor, I saw a man walking away from the stairway. I called to the man and he turned around and came back toward me. The manager said, I know that man, he works here. Okay, and we get the awesome generic description of Lee Oswald, 30 years old, 5'9", 165, dark hair. But Baker says he was wearing a light brown jacket, okay, which we have absolutely no proof whatsoever of Oswald owning a light brown jacket, um, wearing a light brown jacket at work that day. And even for the kooky Oswald on the doorway, people, they that that shirt that looked like a jacket was actually a dark brown, like rusty orange color. So that description doesn't really sound a whole lot like Oswald. Neither does the 165-pound part, because... Just looking back at Oswald's arrest photos and, and footage of him in custody, it's pretty easy to tell that he was very, very slight. And he did look, you know, like a 130-pound little wafy weakling. Uh, 165, you know, that's pretty stout, cordy, muscular, you know, not really that tall. Um, he was just turned 24 years old. Uh, you know, and he's given to say he's 30 years old. So that's not very good at all. Now, interestingly, on December 23rd, 1963, and this is a note from Fritz to the FBI. While we were searching the building, Mr. Roy Truly, uh, gives his address, reported 
to us that one of the men was missing, a Lee Harvey Oswald whose address was 2515 West 5th Street, Irving, Texas. We also found that this man had been stopped by Officer Baker while coming down the stairs. Um, Mr. Baker says that he stopped this man on the third or fourth floor of the stairway, but as Mr. Truly identified him as one of the employees, he was released. After seeing that this man was apparently running, two of the detectives and myself left the building and came to the office for an identification check and other information and soon found that the it was the same man who had shot Officer Tippett. Okay. Now, I'm trying to find here real quick for you a different account from, here we go. Now, this is what Officer Baker told the FBI on September 23rd, 1964, which is damn close to when the Warren Report was published. Okay, so this has, I don't know what bearing this has at all on the case or why they even did this at this point. Uh, but the statement basically reads like this. I, Marion L. Baker, do hereby furnish this voluntary signed statement to Richard Burnett, who has identified himself to me as a special agent of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. On the second floor. Uh, now something's crossed out here. And I can't tell what it is. But it says on the second floor. Uh, it, has, it has his initials there. It says where the lunchroom is located. I saw a man standing in the, in the lunchroom. And then it says drinking a Coke. Which is crossed out. With his initials above it. He was alone in the lunchroom at this time. And... To the best of my, it's something, to the best of my knowledge, uh, I have initialed each page and each correction. Marion L. Baker, witness. Um, so, over the course of that, even not even a year, his statement and his recollection of events changed dramatically. Now, let's take a look at Roy Truly here, and. His first day affidavit is not actually a uh, first day. His is actually a uh, second day. Okay. His statement or affidavit here was, was given on the 23rd day of November, which could have made it possible for them to figure out the timing of things and figure out how they could get Oswald down the stairs into the second floor world. Uh, for this encounter to take place. Um, it says, I'm the superintendent of the Texas School Book Depository, 411 Elm Street, Dallas, Texas. I was working in that capacity yesterday, Friday, November 22nd. I have 19 employees in the plant. Lee Harvey Oswald was one of those employees. He considered him, or we considered him a temporary employee. He was a, he was a lot of extra employees during the, I don't know what that says. Mr. O.V. Campbell, uh, one of the owners, and I started to lunch a few minutes after 12. We saw that the parade was nearly down to us, so we stopped and watched the president go by. After the president passed, we heard what sounded like an explosion. I heard three such explosions. Then I realized that they must have been shots. I saw an officer break and through the crowd and go into our building. I realized he did not know anything about the building, so I ran in with him. The officer and I went through the shipping department to the freight elevator. We then started up the stairway. Uh, we hit the second floor landing and the officer stuck his head into the lunchroom where there are Coke and candy machines. Lee Oswald was in there. The officer had his gun on Oswald and asked if he was an employee. I said yes. We then went up to the stairs to the fifth floor where we found the elevators stuck. We took the elevator to the seventh floor and out onto the roof. We reached the roof in a small room uh, and checked the landing. We could look over the tracks in the street below. We did not find anything. We started down on the elevator. The officer took a hurried look on a couple floors on the way down. We then met other officers on the fourth floor searching the building. I overheard someone say that the shot came from the window of our building, 
by that time, there were several people in the building. Some 15 minutes later, I was checking our employees, and I did not find Lee. I asked Mr. Shelley if he had seen Lee. He said no. I then contacted Chief Lumpkin and told him uh, that Lee was missing. Then both of us went up on the sixth floor where Captain Fritz and I told Captain Fritz about Lee being missing and where he lived. I did not see Lee anymore. Uh, we don't run a thorough check on our temporary employees. They fill out an application form in Lee Oswald's case. A lady from Irving called and said a neighbor had a brother working for me and he had... I don't know what that word says. We could use more help. This woman said she knew a nice young boy. Such a nice young boy. Um, so that's Mr. Truly's account from the 23rd. Um, so now we have Lee Oswald on the second floor. We have him suddenly missing from his famous roll call, of which 15 other employees were not there. Now here in this statement, Truly states that he had 19 employees in the plant. Now, if 15 of them weren't there, that leaves four people were present for Truly's little roll call. Now, that's a lot of people to be missing. And not to mention this roll call happened, okay, after he went up with Marion Baker to the roof, you know, up the stairs, then in the elevator to the roof, looks around, looks at the street below him, comes back down, stops on the fourth floor, you know, talks to the other officers, and then they finally get down to the first floor before he has his roll call. And this probably wouldn't have been until, I don't even know, probably 1 o'clock, I'm guessing. So, you know, and it, and it is true. Now, what I read you from Captain Fritz is when they must have had, they must have gotten hold of some military intelligence files because they list Lee Oswald is an employee of the depository, but they give his address as 605 Elsbeth Street, which is not only a wrong address, but also an old one. Okay? So, and of course, the Irving address that Lee Oswald wrote on his application was not his address, it was Ruth Payne's. So, the hunt is on at this point. Now, interesting you know I told you last week the story of Otis Williams and his ascent up the, up the back stairway to the fourth floor uh, to, to see if he could see what was going on down by the grassy knoll and then he went down to the second floor or yeah second floor to call his wife from his office um, and this week I'd like to take a closer look at Victoria Adams now In her Warren Commission testimony, they have her, of course, leaving within a minute from the window and descending downstairs. And also in her testimony, they have her seeing Bill Shelley and Billy Lovelady down by the elevators. Now, this has always been odd for me. Um, they, Bill and Billy, told the Warren Commission that immediately after the shots, they had actually made their way to the train yard because that's where everybody else was going. But then I was reading their first day affidavits, which told a little bit of a different story, and I shall read you those now. Um, Bill Shelley actually had two affidavits that day. Um, first one is this. I guess it was about different things. Uh, approximately October 10th or 12th, a man by the name of Lee Oswald came to work where I do. I was put in charge of him by Mr. Truly to show him what to do. I have been working close to this man since he'd been there. Uh, this man stayed by himself most of the time and would go for a walk around noontime. So it wasn't uncommon for Lee to leave at lunchtime, apparently. Um... But then he also says Lee would bring his lunch and usually sat with us in the lounge and read the paper. He would usually read about politics, and today I arrived for work about 8 and went about my usual duties. Lee was already filling some orders just outside my office. I saw him periodically all morning with the exception of when we were on the 6th floor. 
At noon, I started eating my lunch in my office, and I went outside to see the president. After the president's accident, <laughs> I started checking around, and I missed Lee. I asked Mr. Truly about him, and he told me he hadn't seen him. I didn't see Lee until police brought him into the police homicide bureau that day. Now, I don't know what spurred Bill Shelley to go looking for Lee, but... Uh, Let's take another look at Bill Shelley's affidavit, his second one. Uh, today, approximately 12.30, I was standing on the front steps at 411 Elm Street watching the president in the parade. The president's car was about halfway from Houston Street to the triple underpass when it sounded like three shots. I could not tell where they were coming from. I ran across the street to the corner of the park and ran into a girl crying, and she said the president had been shot. This girl's name is Gloria Calvary, who is an employee of the same building. I went back into the building and went inside and called my wife and told her what happened. I was on the first floor then, and I stayed at the elevator and was told not to let anyone out of the elevator. I left the elevator and went with the police on up to the other floors. I left Jack Doherty in charge of the elevator. Okay, so... We have two different stories here from Bill Shelley. Uh, one including Gloria Calvary and him going back into the building back by the elevators, which is where the Warren Commission, her, her testimony to the Warren Commission said that she saw Bill Shelley and Billy Lovelady. But in what they told the commission is that they went to the train yard. Now, why I think this was done is to shed some doubt on Victoria Adams' timeline. Because if it was found to be true that she had descended the stairs and saw Bill Shelley and Bill Lovelady down there by the elevator in the back door, then she had to be mistaken about exactly how long it took her before she left the fourth floor to come down the stairs. Because what, what Bill Shelley and Bill Lovely told the Warren Commission is that after the shots, they started walking for the, for the railroad, the, the rail yard back there, and they got so far and were turned back by police and told to, come, you know, to go back to the building. And so they, they came around the back side of the building and, and entered through the back door, which would have put them right there at the vicinity of the elevator and the back door. Which would have been probably, I'm guessing, five minutes or so after the shots. Which throws into serious doubt Victoria Adams' story. Okay? And, and, and it, it gives them plausible deniability to discount uh, her testimony. Because it just doesn't jive with, with what we supposedly know. Now... Over the years and over the years and over the years, nobody was really worried about Vicki Adams, uh, including Vicki Adams herself. You know, all these years she told, you know, she, she, she uh, gave the Warren Commission her testimony and she sat there and she waited, you know, you know how they always ask the witnesses, you know, you know, if you would like to come down and sign a copy once we get it typed up, after you after you reread it and make sure everything's okay, you know, you can do that, or you can just sign off on it now and you don't have to worry about it. Well, Vicky was one of the rare ones that actually wanted to see her testimony uh, and 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 make sure it was correct before you know went up to the commission. So that actually happened. You know, she she uh, she got her copy of her testimony, the Warren report. She read through it. She made some corrections on, on it, initialed it, signed it, and forgot about it. And then many, many years later, it occurred to her when she saw a copy of the 26 volumes somewhere in a bookstore, I believe it was, or the library or somewhere like that, to take a look and read her testimony. And what she found startled her. Because it's not, A, what she told the commission, and B, it's not what she corrected and initialed and signed off on afterwards. Meaning, they had totally changed her testimony. She never told them 
that she saw Bill Shelley and Billy Lovelady down by the elevators. That's not correct at all. She told them there was nobody on the first floor except for one old black man who we can uh, assume was Eddie Piper, the, uh, the Texas School Book Depository janitor or porter, the elevator operator, okay? And that actually kind of matches what Jack Doherty told us. You know, when he said he heard the shots and he was on the up on the fifth or sixth floor and, 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 he, and then uh, that he went downstairs and talked to Eddie Piper. And Eddie Piper said he had heard three gunshots. So we pretty much know Eddie Piper was kind of right there, like in the lobby of the first floor. Okay. And so when Victoria Adams read her testimony, it blew her mind. Because they had totally changed her testimony. Changed it. Straight up changed it. Why? Why would they do that? Well, I'll tell you. Because if Victoria Adams' testimony had gone in unchanged, they would have had to account for her. Okay? You know, they did all these time tests with Roy Truly and Marion Baker and, and... Having somebody up on the sixth floor, you know, going through the motions of shooting and then running down, you know, hiding the gun, then running down to the second floor, getting a Coke. And then, you know, they're trying to time all this stuff out to make it possible, to make it plausible that Lee Oswald could have done this on the sixth floor and gotten down to the second floor in time for Marion Baker and Roy Truly to encounter him. Okay. Now, when you talk to Marion Baker... You know, he always gives you a rough estimate of a minute and a half to two minutes before he, he, he encountered Oswald. You know, before, from the time he heard the shots to the time he encountered Oswald is two minutes. Okay, one and a half to two minutes. Now, on the time trials, when they redid them, they did them in like a minute 30 and a minute 15. Roy truly estimated the time from the time that he went in the building until the time they encountered Oswald on the second floor as being one minute, 18 seconds, roughly. Okay, which is ever increasingly shrinking this Oswald timeline. Okay, now he, has, he Oswald has a certain window. Okay, so if you can imagine on the ground, imagine this for a second. Okay, Marion Baker supposedly hears the three shots, and he's right there, you know, a couple hundred feet away from the school book depository. He hears the shots, sees the pigeons go up. Hurries up there, gets off his bike, turns his motor off, runs into the building, truly follows him. They talk for a second, try to call the elevator, it's hung up on the fifth floor, so they take the stairs. Now, in the meantime, Oswald's on the sixth floor, supposedly, supposedly just killed the president. Uh, and as soon as he did that, okay, we have you have to have him stand up. You have to have him hustle out of his little hidey hole there and all the way across to the other side of the building the other corner hide the gun carefully in between boxes you know he just didn't throw it in there he didn't drop it place it carefully hidden in between some boxes uh, by the stairway there and then make his descent from the sixth floor now coincide this with what's going on on the ground and it's remarkable that Oswald could beat them down four flights of stairs as he, after he made his trek and hit his gun all the way to the second floor of the lunchroom, bought a Coke, have it in his hand, and the time that it takes for Marion Baker to run in the building, take the stairs to the second floor. Somehow Oswald beat them. Now, if Victoria Adams is to be believed that as soon as the shots rang out, you know, within seconds, her and, you know, she takes off for the stairs. You know, that puts her coming down the stairs before Roy Truly and Marion Baker are even in the building yet. Okay, and then you ha we have Otis Williams to account for. You know, did he make it up the f to the fourth floor before Baker and Truly as well? More than likely. You know, he, he said he went in immediately after the shots. So we have Miss Baker coming down the stairs. Okay, they were. 
and they probably walk past each other in the lobby. We have Otis Williams going up to, up the stairs of the fourth floor. Neither one of them seeing Oswald or anybody else come down. Okay. Then we have Truly and Baker encounter on the second floor, supposedly with Oswald. But we also have another witness, Carolyn Arnold, who says she saw Oswald on the second floor at 1225. Which means that somehow, after her seeing him with a Coke at 1225, he ran upstairs, four flights of stairs, grabbed his gun. Well, he had to put it together sometime, so I guess he put it together really quick. And uh, just in the nick of time, even though the motorcade was running late, he manages to get off his shots, kill the president, hide the gun, and get back down to the second floor all within six minutes. <laughs> sure. Tell me another one, please, please tell me another one. Um, this is why Barry Ernest wrote a book all about Victoria Adams. And it's not just about Victoria Adams. It's his journey of trying to find her over the decades and his journey through JFK research and the people that he inter interacted with and the people he encountered and came across. You know, I mean, this guy was... I mean, it's a great book. I recommend it to anybody out there who's a researcher. You know, it's just the guy left led a fantastic life. And, you know, the things that he went through and the people that he got to work with and talk to are just amazing. And the great part about it is it has a happy ending. You know, eventually he did find Victoria Adams. She finally did set the record straight, you know, and she proved that the Warren Commission was actually changing people's testimony to support the fact that Oswald could have actually been on the second floor after descending from the sixth in the time it took for Roy's Truly and Marion Baker to get in the building. And if, and if, if, if it happened the way that we've been told all these years, she would have encountered him or Otis Williams would have encountered him going up or she would have encountered him coming down. Neither one of them heard nothing. You know, we heard from the guys that were on the fifth floor yesterday, or last week, I'm sorry. And, uh, you know, their story's all over the place. You know, they lie, you know, worse than the rogues. So, another interesting tidbit I, I saw on here is that, uh, is that, uh, Truly and Baker ran up the stairs, okay, to the fifth floor after their Oswald encounter in quotes and took the elevator to the seventh floor to the roof. Now why no fifth floor encounter? Okay. Uh, we know Bonnie Ray Williams and, and Harold Norman and junior Jarman were up there on the fifth floor. Uh, why didn't they see him? Why didn't they stop him? Why didn't Baker pull his gun on them and say, Hey, Mr. Truly, do these, do you know these people? Which truly would have said, yeah, they work here. I know them. That didn't happen. Okay. Because these three guys were hiding. Okay. They were hiding after the shots. Why were they hiding? Were they just scared to be implicated up in the plot somehow? Or was it more sinister than that? And that, my friends, is something that we'll never, ever know. All right, people. That's it for this week. Sorry I got all emotional and shit on you at the beginning. But Robert Kennedy was a great man, just like his brother. Struck down way too soon. And he might have even been a greater president than his brother. But we'll never know. Um, and I played that for you just to give you an illustration of, of, you know, just what an amazing orator and person that Bobby Kennedy was and, you know, the direction that our country was heading at the time that, you know, there's all this turmoil and strife and uncertainty and, and civil rights movements. And, you know, they were trying to pit in white against black and, 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 you know, Bobby Kennedy gave a hell of a message. And if you go to, to Indianapolis today, 
they actually erected a monument for him and Martin Luther King on the very site that he gave that speech where it has Martin Luther King on one side and Bobby Kennedy on the other and they're both reaching out of pieces of iron from having their hands down to touch the people they're actually reaching out towards each other to shake hands and it's just an amazing piece of sculpture art uh, hopefully it will be there for eternity uh, so people will never forget what happened to our country and uh, our great great leaders and our once great country and now I'm going to leave you with a little something about where we are now and how we're not the greatest country anymore enjoy you're saying yes let's talk about fine let's... Sharon the NEA is a loser yeah it accounts for a penny out of her paycheck but he gets to hit you with it anytime he wants it doesn't cost money it costs votes it costs airtime and column inches you know why people don't like liberals because they lose if liberals are so fucking smart, how come they lose so goddamn always? Hey. And with a straight face, you're going to tell students that America is so star-spangled awesome that we're the only ones in the world who have freedom? Canada has freedom. Japan has freedom. The UK, France, Italy, Germany, Spain, Australia, Belgium has freedom. So 207 sovereign states in the world, like 180 of them have freedom. All right. And yet you, uh, sorority girl, just in case you accidentally wander into a voting booth one day, there's some things you should know. And one of them is... There is absolutely no evidence to support the statement that we're the greatest country in the world. We're 7th in literacy, 27th in math, 22nd in science, 49th in life expectancy, 178th in infant mortality, 3rd in median household income, number 4 in labor force, and number 4 in exports. We lead the world in only three categories. Number of incarcerated citizens per capita, number of adults who believe angels are real, and defense spending, where we spend more than the next 26 countries combined, 25 of whom are allies. Now, none of this is the fault of a 20-year-old college student, but you nonetheless are, without a doubt, a member of the worst period, generation period ever, period. So when you ask what makes us the greatest country in the world, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Yosemite? sure used to be. We stood up for what was right. We fought for moral reasons. We passed laws, struck down laws for moral reasons. We waged wars on poverty, not poor people. We sacrificed. We cared about our neighbors. We put our money where our mouths were, and we never beat our chest. We built great big things, made ungodly technological advances, explored the universe, cured diseases, and we cultivated the world's greatest artists and the world's greatest economy. We reached for the stars, acted like men. We aspired to intelligence. We didn't belittle it. It didn't make us feel inferior. We didn't identify ourselves by who we voted for in the last election, and we didn't, we didn't scare so easy. We were able to be all these things and do all these things because we were informed by great men, men who were revered. First step in solving any problem is recognizing there is one. America is not the greatest country in the world anymore. And yes, I know it's from a TV show, but the words are real, the facts are real, and the truth is real, no matter what it hurts. You know, we're a nation no longer about great men and about the people. It's now about the corporations and the secret societies that are behind everything. It's, it's the people with money that rule the world. And... The people don't matter anymore. It's not in our best interest anymore. So, people ask me why I do this. That's why I do this. Because people need to be informed about things. And they need to be reminded every day why people like me 
and people like you still care about the Kennedy assassination, about Martin Luther King assassination, about RFK assassination, and on and on and on. All the atrocities that this government has perpetrated on the world. For what? For what? To make other people rich? To make corporations rich? Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Now look where we are. You know, I heard a crazy fact the other day that John F. Kennedy was the only president uh, not related to any other president. And you might think that's crazy, but Barack Obama is has 16 presidents somewhere in his family tree. He's even related to Dick Cheney in some weird roundabout way. And that's not a conspiracy, that's a fact. Um, you know, Joseph Kennedy... Jack Kennedy's dad uh, made his money a different way. He wasn't born into it, um, and he was he was considered an outsider. People didn't like him. People didn't respect him, you know. But he brought his boys up different, and damn if he didn't do a good job with all of them. And uh, you know, if it weren't for the uh, movement of some bullets. You know, we actually could have had a Kennedy political dynasty in this country. We could have had a Kennedy in the White House from 1960 to 1976. Okay. I mean, 1984. I'm sorry. They could have been a quarter of a century of Kennedy presidents. And this world would be a totally different place. America would be a totally different country. Imagine if you will for a second all the great things we were doing and the advancements we had going on in the 50s and 60s and 70s. You know, but everything got co-opted along the way and turned around and uh you know, the wars and the lies and the deceit and all the mess. All these horrible presidents like Johnson and Nixon and Ford and Reagan and Bush and Clinton and Bush and Obama and Bush probably or Clinton doesn't really matter they're all the same they're puppets they do what they're told you know you remember all the great things Obama said he was going to do for this country <laughs> yeah I guess these guys they let him say anything they want when they're campaigning you know uh but when they actually if they actually get in the white house or chosen to be the one the uh you know the head puppet in charge um they start singing a real different tune uh, but that's it for this week, people. I encourage everyone to go check out tlgpodcast.com. You can help support the show there by donating or shopping through my Amazon link or shopping through my vape store link. Um, be greatly appreciated. Help keep the show floating uh, with no adverts. Um, check out tpac.com, my boy Carmine's site, uh, for his book, Two Princes and a King. Check out Chuck O'Celli at ucy.tv backslash toe check out his show check out my buddy Doug's show the dallas action over on spreaker you can find him on facebook spreaker and his shows are even on tlgpodcast.com so check it out until next time people let's go start a revolution Yeah, this son of a bitch is in the can. Beamed up to the satellite down directly to your ears. Until next time, people. Peace. But when you talk about destruction. You know that you can count me out Don't you know it's gonna be Alright 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 You say you got a real solution Love to see the plan 
Save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt Bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. <laughs> 